What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. Today is Thursday, January 26th. As we record this, I am Carlos Colazo, joined as always by Ben Badler. Uh, ben, what is up, man? How are you doing? I'm fantastic, Carlos. How's everything going with you? It is good. You know, uh, I woke up at like 2.30 a.m. last night because our apartment complex decided to have a fire alarm. Um Seemingly for no reason, but uh, no, other than that, things are good. I am excited to chat with you. There's a lot of a lot of stuff on the docket today that's interesting um, to talk about. It really feels like there's a ton on the website. I honestly can't even keep up with it, um, but this is four in a row for us, Ben. We're really in a groove. I feel like we're in mid-season form, even though it's January. This is our last January podcast. Um, but yeah, there's some news out in baseball. There's Hall of Fame stuff. We've got uh, more prospects to talk about, as always. So, um, yeah, how are things for you? It, it is it is a busy month for us. It's probably it. I, I think in season in like July, when the draft is going on, when there are trades happening, we're doing our midseason prospect ranking update. You've got the futures game. That's probably our busiest month. But after that, like I, I think January has become one of the busiest months. And I don't know if you get mm. questions about this from people, not people who work in baseball or from baseball America readers, but just from like friends and family, like, like when they know they're like, Oh yeah. Oh, you work in baseball. So what do you do in the off season? It's just like really slow for you. It's like, no, it's the opposite <laughs> of that. Yeah. That's when it's, it really cranks up. It's a really weird dynamic because in terms of busyness of travel, the winter and the off season is always the most laid back. And there's, there's virtually no travel unless you're going to the winter meetings or to ABCA. Uh, I'm trying to think what else there would be in the winter to travel to. There, there's really not much travel. And then in the International summer stuff for me, yeah, but yeah, for you. And, and in the summer, and I'm, I'm curious to get into the kind of the intricacies of our, our different schedules because there are a few different busy periods for the prospect team that are not necessarily as busy for me directly because I'm mostly focused on the draft, but I feel like the last few years I've been more and more involved in the prospect team. So I kind of get a little bit of everything. Um, but in the winter, it is nice because there's not a lot of travel. You can kind of create your own schedule, but there's just a lot of work you're doing to get ready for the season. And then the summer, it's funny, my friends, it seems like most people's jobs who are not in sports or not in baseball specifically, they want to travel in the summer, obviously when it's nice outside, you can go to the beach, you can do fun outdoor activities. And it's like, I can never travel in the months of basically mm -hmm. May, June, July, August. Those are really tough travel months for me. And it's like, Hey, are you guys free in December? <laughs> what do you want to do then? They're like, uh, yeah. no. <laughs> but it has to be after we finish the prospect handbook. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm not complaining by mm -hmm. any means. Oh, no, no, I love, no. love love what we do, but it absolutely is something where, you know, like like you said, like my you know my family will try to schedule a you know family vacation in the summer, and they're like, "What dates work for you?" I'm like, "I don't know yet. Like, I will know probably right before." <laughs> Yes, there's probably a very narrow window in there and just talking to scouts a lot, mm -hmm. you know, the same kind of stuff where you're like, oh, you just you feel bad where, you know, you want to be able to plan and plan ahead sometimes. The one and... the one day on the draft side, that was always a, a bit of a pain point. I don't know if it was, it was a massive deal because 
neither myself nor Maddie take Valentine's Day very seriously, but I, I think the first three or four years I worked at Baseball America, I was in Florida for Valentine's Day just because that <laughs> happened to be the first weekend for college baseball. There's always a good high school tournament that's going on. So the first four years that that we were together, really, we didn't do anything for Valentine's. So shout out to uh, to the spouses everywhere for putting up with with our schedules and our families for for dealing with that but like you said it's it's not a point of frustration i feel very glad that that we get to have the schedule that we do but january is a bit of an odd month because to your point it, it always feels like one of the busiest months on the website in terms of content that we're putting out and because of that it's a busy month just in terms of workload but january never feels like a heavy workload to me in the same like compared to May, June, July, those feel significantly heavier for me than January. How does how does that match up for you? Because obviously you've got all the prospect content that we're doing in January, and now with the new international schedule, that's that's twice as much on your plate. Whereas I'm doing a lot of work on the preview side, and there's certainly draft stuff that's that's happening, um, but it's not like the draft is taking place in January, which is basically the what is happening for the international side? Yeah, I mean, that's been the biggest change over the last couple of years is it used to be July 2nd was the international signing period opening. And in some ways, I'm glad it's not in the middle of the minor league season. It's mm-hmm. it's a good way to at least give it its own spotlight for, uh, you know, for international signings as opposed to having it, you know, just in the middle of the major league season, the minor league season. Uh, like the USA collegiate national team is usually playing there. So it's like, okay, cool. I can, you know, spend some time in January, give, you know, give these players some more attention just it does, publicly. It does feel like a much better schedule just in terms of spacing things out. Cause you, you had mentioned how July feels like our busiest time of year, just because of the draft, because of the futures game, because of the all-star break, um, midpoint of the minor league season. There's just so much I, I can't imagine adding on, a typical July 2nd to that, that would, that yeah, would really now it's, I'm not saying it's the best thing for the teams and it's definitely not the best thing for mm-hmm. the players and, and the player thing in particular is because, uh, you know, I, I am not a tax expert. This is not tax advice <laughs> or, or any, any disclaimer that we need to get out of the way, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, the reason you're seeing, every international signing now for the most part spend their first season in the dominican summer league is for tax reasons Mm -hmm. so before they would you would have a player sign on july 2nd and let's say it was july 2nd 2018 so they would be signing a 2019 contract so they would sign july to 2018 and they wouldn't actually play until 2019 now they would get paid their bonus. I mean, you, you have to negotiate when you get paid, but you would get paid your bonus in 2018 and you haven't played any games in the United States. So they're not paying taxes on, you know, they're not paying U.S. income tax. And if you're signing for a million dollars, that's a substantial amount of money. And especially that million dollars needs to last you for several years because the next few years of your life, you're going to be basically getting paid nothing because minor league salaries are are close to nothing whereas now you sign january 15th 2023 
if you come and play in the United States, you're going to get taxed on that money. You're going to lose a big chunk of that money. So the players are saying, hey, no, no, no. I, I want to stay in the Dominican Summer League or their advisors, agents. Or the are agents, saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and the teams are like, yeah, like, look, we don't want to cut a kid's, you know, cut what a kid is essentially receiving by 40%. Yeah, it makes, so we're gonna, makes no difference for the team. I, well, I mean, I, th- I think in some cases the team would like to move the players along faster because you sign, you know, an elite player. I, I don't know what the Padres are going to do, for example, with – Ethan Salas, or you go, you know, to a year ago with Jackson Churio, you know, guys who signed for, you know, the big top of the line, top of the class bonuses, those premium players would start in Arizona or they would start in Florida. And now they're all just starting for the most part in the Dominican Summer League. Now, Jackson Churio didn't slow his timeline down by any means. He's got to double a at 18 years old and yeah he's on his own know. timeline there yeah but i i think it's something the play when the players association agreed to during the pandemic they're during the height of the pandemic to move the signing date back from july 2nd to january 15th i think that was a mistake not because those players are members of the union and they're necessarily looking out for their rights but because it could at least theoretically slow down the path for some players to get to the big leagues. So if you're getting to the big leagues at, you know, 21, you can become a free agent. Maybe when you're 28 years old, you know, every, every year you go uh, beyond that, you're slowing down your timetable to get to the big leagues and you're just going to have older free agents. Now, again, the, you know, the super, super talented players, uh, you know, Julio Rodriguez obviously didn't slow him down. But I do think it was a mistake for for the players' association to do that. But but yeah, it's definitely made January a lot uh, a lot busier. I can tell you, my uh, Christmas break was <laughs> not much of a not much of a break. Yeah, just to I, I'm I'm curious to talk about like what a scouting schedule is like in January. Maybe people are interested in what that's like. But um, just to linger a little bit on on our personal schedules in January, what is kind of your what are, I guess, all the things you're working on in January? How would you outline the workload relative to other months? Because for me, it it does feel like the break comes, we send the handbook and we typically send the prospect handbook like a week before Christmas. And then we get a nice two week chunk or so where we're off. We don't really have to do too much outside of if things are popping up in terms of trades or big news. Um, and then January at least on the amateur side, is when myself, Teddy Cahill, Peter Flaherty, who are on the college team, those two are working on a lot, a lot of college preview content that's going in the magazine, getting our top 25, which just released this past week. Is that correct? This past Monday? Top 25, yep. Yeah, time is flying. Um, so they're doing that. They're working on capsules for the top 25 teams, conference previews. I'm always working on our updated draft lists, at this time of the year, um, if you're listening to this now and it's not Monday yet, um, you can look forward to the a draft list dropping next week at Baseball America. So that's a lot of what I'm working on. Early in January, we always have our top 100 meeting. So it's just a lot of updated rankings for me, getting information organized, making calls on the amateur guys, spending a little bit more time going over our notes and feedback on the pro guys. Um, and then really trying to get into a rhythm for the season and trying to get prepared for the season. I know 
the past few weeks, I've also been trying to plan out some of the big events I'm going to, getting a few things down on the schedule that I, I definitely don't want to miss. Um, but for you, what is the what does the month look like in terms of what you're working on, who you're talking to, what you're focused on um, for everything that you're doing at BA? Because you're yeah. wearing a lot of hats now at this point, Ben. You're not just the international guy. Yeah, top 100 prospects, January 15th, international signings, making sure we're ready for that. 2024 high school top 100, getting going on a 2025 ranking as well. Um, and then a whole, uh, you know, and then also figuring out where we're going to slot all of these international signings into each team's prospect rankings, trying to make sure we get updated information and reports on those players and figure out where to slide those guys in like you said more rankings are our fypd first year player draft dynasty top I forgot about that one yeah rankings is up and then a whole bunch of stuff on the back end side of our our website and business and like you said just making sure everything is kind of ready to go once once the college season starts once the high school season gets underway i know there's been a couple events already uh here and there in, in yeah. the beginning of the year already. it always seems like in florida or arizona there's always a few high school tournaments going on junior college baseball will get rolling at the end of this month so there's a few yeah. things going on but for the most part we haven't got started with with actual baseball activity yet so like you said there's not, not a lot of actual baseball happening but if you're and go maybe back to even december or maybe stretching to november too but you know, especially december january i mean if you're an area scout or maybe a, a cross checker in the states what are those guys doing at at this time of year hopefully talking to me um, yeah <laughs> ideally ideally that would be the case i know i know i'm pestering a lot of those guys at this point before the season gets rolling just making sure for our preseason lists i've got everything in a row, as much information as I can. But I think in a lot of ways, similar to how January feels like kind of a preparation month for us, I think it's, at least on the amateur side, I think it's the same for those guys. I know just having conversations with with area scouts and cross-checkers and scouting directors, it's a lot of work to put yourself in a position to have a strong spring for the area guys. It's, it's making sure they have their pref lists in order and making sure they have all of the names they need on the outset of the season so that they can prioritize their schedule. Um, I'm sure different teams do it different ways, but mostly the way that I've heard that teams operate is they have a pref list. They're trying to work from the top down early on to make sure they're getting um, looks at the, the highest priority guys early on in the season. And so later in the spring, they can kind of work through more depth players who are maybe interesting later on day two or early day three or, or complete day three guys and then circle back to the players that you need to hit again at the top of your pref list or circle back to players who are coming off of injuries or for whatever reason, haven't played early on. But I think a lot of the work is probably logistical as much as just making sure you have the right players. Just the logistics of the schedules for area scouts is a nightmare uh, from my perspective, because they have so many schedules to juggle. They have to have, uh, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, any given week for weather issues or if a player that they were trying to go see is not scheduled to play. So just having those contingency plans to make sure, even if they have a game washed or, or a specific look that they were going to washed, they have something else that they can do to be productive. So 
from my point of view, my perspective, my conversations that I've had with these guys, it's it's a lot of that, of, of getting kind of your ducks in a row and making sure you're ready for the season and probably enjoying as much time at the house as you can before you're really mm-hmm. firing on all cylinders. I'm curious yeah. how that would vary for, for pro scouts or, or what the international perspective would be if you have any insight into that, Ben, or anything to add on the amateur guys. Yeah, the, the international is just 365 days a year. I mean, there is They don't December, have any slow period? December is this probably the, is, is the slowest period, mm-hmm. especially around around the holidays, just people in general in the Dominican Republic kind of, they just, you know, shut things down. The academies closed down mm-hmm. then. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's, you know, maybe they open a little earlier than usual sometimes just with the January 15th signings, although a lot of teams aren't really doing too much right before January 15th in, in terms of on, on-field stuff or, or even just bringing players in um, just to have them staying at the academy before before the 15th. It used to be maybe a bigger thing before July 2nd, but um yeah, I mean, again, there's a little bit of a lull in in December. It's like I don't think I've even been down to the Dominican Republic in December, just because things slow down there. There's just not as many showcases or events happening at that time. But I mean, yeah, again, in January things pick back up, and it's nonstop because you're looking at players for obviously you have the the signings on the fifteenth, but otherwise teams are going out looking at players who are you know el- players who are eligible to sign right now usually not like the big money guys because a lot of teams don't have much <laughs> bonus pool money left but again a, a player who quote unquote develops later on is still 16 <laughs> or 17 years old right now so especially pitching you, you've always got to be on the lookout for that. I mean, the Astros obviously have done a tremendous job signing the eligible pitchers and turn those guys into key parts of their rotation. And, you know, Roman Akimares and, and Azo Campo were, were there in Houston. Now they're in Miami, uh, just a, a good example of, of what you can do there. But then also the reality is teams are scouting, you know, not just players who are going to sign in, 24 if, if anything more of their attention now is focused on you know unfortunately like 25 and and really more so to that players are going to sign in 26 even 2027 i mean you know it, it, it's absurd the way the system has become but it's it's just a hyper competitive system and there's just so many players to scout so they're just it's just constant non-stop evaluating and and try to go out and see and and try to sign players year-round internationally i would be really interested too to be a fly on the wall in a lot of the amateur scouting departments who are doing these preseason meetings because i've heard from a number of teams recently that they'll they'll go through exercises that we like to do here at baseball america they'll do their own internal mock drafts almost well they're just kind of they'll Mm -hmm. go around their room uh and they'll have i don't know what the extent of the the scouting department being involved, whether it's everyone, including area scouts, all the way up to cross checkers, national evaluators, special assignment scouts. Um, I'm sure it varies team to team, but it is always interesting to me hearing about how the teams will go through these exercises to kind of gauge where the landscape is nationally. And I'm sure it helps them to, to kind of get these pref lists solidified and ordered. But I think it would be really cool to see 
how in depth they're actually getting at this point in the process. It, it mostly feels like you're trying to just kind of tier players more than get super nitty gritty like you will in your pre-draft meetings later in the spring once you've gotten um, a full amateur season under your belt and you have new information. But I do think it's cool that in the same way that we love to do mock drafts and staff drafts here, teams are also doing it as well. I, I think it would be super fascinating to to see one of those unfold, although there's no reason for, for me to ever see that. I just hear Yeah, that. well, it's, it's, you know, like the season starts in February, and we've talked about especially with a new... I don't even know what's new now. Schedule, you know, where the draft is in July. Yeah. You're starting in February, draft is in July, and you're already trying to see players for the following year after that. So mm -hmm. July, August, you're super busy. September, October. Yeah, the, the PDP League, I think, is a good example. They just announced the dates for that, right? And that, that takes place in June, the middle of June, and that's a month before the draft has actually happened. So a very prominent event that's taking place before the draft, and that that's one that, all these guys need to see. So the, the overlap but, yeah, is definitely real. Yeah, you have all these fall events for high school players in, in September, October. You've got fall ball for college stuff in in October and then in November as well. So, you know, they're really that, you know, the end of November, December, January is a time to just sit back and say, okay, let's, let's actually go over and just digest all of the information that we have kind of, you know, the same way where we're, you know, we're talking we're, about this with the top 100 last podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're working through rankings in season ourselves, but when you just have more time to think through things and just look over all of the information and all of the data that you have, you can, you can get a better feel for players and, you know, and at least from our perspective, I know when I write or an actual report on a player, I have an idea in my head Mm -hmm. of where players where a player should rank and then i write his report and then i'm like wait this guy yes. should be much lower he's not as good yes. that's the idea I've, i had, I've of had him. this exact this exact thing happened to me this past week i'm writing a bunch of updated reports i'm writing reports on new players who, who we don't have reports on yet for the draft and i see where they're listed and in, in kind of the running list that we have for the draft and i'll write a, a pitcher write his report feel fine about it go to the next guy maybe a few pitchers down, maybe 20 or 30 spots separated. I'm like, hmm, this the separation here doesn't really track with the report that I just finished writing. Was I off with something? And and let's try and rectify this if possible on the list. Because it's also tricky too, because obviously the report is going to have a lot of what I personally think about the player and the list itself needs to be, especially on the draft side, like the list is, the goal is to reflect the industry's consensus. So I'm sure there's a case where or I'm writing a player who I personally, for whatever reason, don't like as much as the industry. So trying to make sure my personal opinion doesn't color the report itself, reflecting accurate industry feedback, but also just, I think your, your main point is when you're writing these players, you develop a much more nuanced feel for them and that can help solidify and refine your rankings. It just, it forces the act of writing forces clarity of thought yeah. and not if, you know i don't think i'm like a world-class writer or anything but i know writing doesn't come supernaturally for mm -hmm. everybody but i think when you have to actually put your thoughts down on on paper or or, or mm -hmm. digitally just on your computer or ipad wherever you're writing your report down it does it does force that clarity of thought especially mm -hmm. when you're like you said evaluating players 
at the same position. I mean, if you're writing up two right-handed pitchers, and then you're like, wait, this is how this player's, you know, you're evaluating his delivery, his pitches, his control, everything, you know, his how much physical projection he has left, his arm speed, and you're like, wait, everything about, <laughs> or, or almost everything about this player I have lower is better. Maybe he's not as famous yet, or for some other reason, maybe he didn't have as much attention early on in in his um, you know in his career but maybe he's jumped past him now yeah this is also why this podcast is such low quality because neither of us have great clarity of thought because we're, we're talking and thinking as we go so we need to transition this and in just into just a long q a session that we post on the site people would like it better the i think the other big thing maybe not a ton this time of year but especially toward the end of maybe 2022 i think home visits are a big thing oh true for yeah. for area scouts i think that's a big part of what mm-hmm. they're trying to do to just get better get to know the players get to know their families try to get a read on makeup i'm not sure how much value that ultimately i think does it was a lot add i think i think that's the consensus yes yeah i mean I think we've talked about this before in one of our earlier podcasts uh, on the future projection feed, but that makeup information that you can get is, I think, incredibly valuable. I mean, one of the biggest things, too, that the scouts are trying to get a feel for or even uh, just get a concrete idea of is signing signing bonus, what what players true, might be looking true. for in terms of signability. That's, that's certainly uh, valuable information that teams are trying to get so they know – if they have a chance, for instance, I mean, I think Stanford, high school players committed to Stanford have the biggest reputation for this, but they're notoriously difficult to sign away from a Stanford commitment because un- understandably the players who are committed there value uh, a Stanford education significantly. Duke, I would say. Every too. year. Yeah, there, there are a few programs that each year, um, and especially if we're talking about a player who's who is outside of the consensus first round range, like typically – especially if we're talking about hitters, if you're committed to Vanderbilt, but you're a consensus top 10 pick, most most teams and most most players, it seems like they're signing. We don't have a lot of history of top 10 talents out of high school holding out and getting to college. I mean, yeah. Kamar Rocker is one notable one. He's a pitcher. I think it's a lot easier for pitchers uh, to get to college than those elite hitting prospects. But in general... Yes, these in-home visits to get a better understanding of the makeup of the player, what they're like as a person, what their home life is like. I think all of that, the biggest thing is I don't know how you would quantify it, and that can be difficult weighting it properly, but I think undoubtedly there is some value in there that needs to be applied and, and just the weight of how you apply it to your report on a player, your evaluation on a player is is obviously where the uh, the magic happens and is the trickiest part to figure out. I think I think a lot of the value can come just from building that relationship with the player and his family and building trust with them. And it's not just done through one home visit, but being there in person, yeah. being in, in their home certainly helps with that. And, and this happens on the international side as well, too. Or I would imagine you have even more leverage for those relationships to make a meaningful difference in acquiring a player or not on the international side since it's it's not like you either picked this player in the draft and you get signing rates or you didn't it's this player has 
a choice of all 30 teams within signing signing or signing bonus pool limitations, I guess. But yeah, and then also they're just the reality of the you know you're committing an international player is committing to sign with a team when they're maybe 13 or 14 years old, and you want to make sure you know your area scouts continue to have a good relationship with the player and his family, and they're checking in on them, making sure if they need anything, you're you're there to you know, to help however you can. So I think that's a big part of it too. But yeah, I mean, domestically in the United States, it's like you said, that signability is important where you're trying to, yeah. you know, it, it becomes a factor in, in at the top rounds too. But I would imagine, especially in the later rounds where you're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, broker a deal with a player behind the that... scenes and saying, will you take this amount of money? And yes. hey, do we... Yeah, and I and I trust that this area scout for this team because I know him. We have a relationship with him. That if I tell other teams that are trying to draft me higher, if I tell them no, that the deal yeah, is still going to be there. The deal yeah. that that they're offering is is going to be they're going to be good for their word. And I think which another doesn't area, always happen. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think another area too is in in this era of a twenty round draft, NDFA's are much more important than they used to be. And after the 20 rounds are up, having those relationships built from your area scouts to get solid NDFA signings, I think is an area where you can really leverage those relationships where maybe in a 40 round draft where most of the players you're drafting or not most of the players, but there are players who you're drafting who really don't have a spot in your organization and you get, you get picks. Like I remember, I think I was interning in 2014, the, the Padres picked Johnny Manziel in like the 37th round or something. And it wasn't a pick because they wanted Johnny Manziel in their org. It was because they had 40 rounds. They don't have any obvious holes in their org they're trying to fill. And they wanted Johnny Manziel to come to spring training or something like that. Yeah. Um, but now when it's 20 rounds and you have this larger pool of players who you're trying to convince to sign with your organization, and now all these players aren't going to be getting some huge sum of money, they have a massive benefit in being able to choose if they have multiple offers they're going to look at their relationships with a scout they're going to look at the track record of a team in developing their position they're going to look at facilities they're going to look at reputations of organizations all these things are factors that are going to determine whether or not the player signs with you whereas in the draft it's do you agree to the signing bonus of the team that just happened to pick you so all of this stuff i think is super important what about what about off-season workouts like yeah. off season you know every player in you know different parts of the country is at a different point like if you're a pitcher in the northeast right now you're made well some kids are throwing now some kids you know are still shut down but you know if you're getting ready to go in florida your season's starting pretty soon so you're getting ramped up how important do you think off season bullpens are or going to see a player hitting or or just working out as a position player before the season gets started yeah i I think it can be really important especially if you're talking about players who were injured the prior year and you want to get a sense of Mm. of what they're looking like post-injury particularly for pitchers but i remember i think it was austin beck the year he was drafted he he was injured during the summer and talking with Hudson at the time, he was like, yeah, I've heard Austin Beck looks explosive in his um, workouts and batting practice. The the bat speed is insane. And, and Austin Beck was a super high priority target. I'm assuming because of those off season workouts were, were so explosive. I mean, I've already heard of a few pitchers who are throwing bullpens 
uh, who, are, who are just showing much more improved stuff than scouts saw from this player a few months ago, or just looking at the development of a body. I know there are tons of players who you have physical projection who, who you hope come into some strength and, and these off-season workouts can really show you in person what this player has done over the off-season. Have they put in the work to, to overhaul or transform their body or address weaknesses? Or maybe it's even something as not simple, but something like a mechanical change. Was there a, a clear flaw or issue or question mark that a team had with a player's swing or bat path or hitting mechanics or arm stroke or any number of different things that a player maybe has targeted as an area of weakness and has addressed that? And if you see differences in these things in in a workout or an offseason environment, maybe it doesn't mean as much as actual game looks in the season, but it certainly can tell you about how a player is changing, how a player is developing, what they're focusing on, um, and how previous weaknesses might be strengths or just no longer holes in their game. So I think there's a, a ton of information that you can get from those workouts, and I think especially with with scouts in the northern half of the country it's a lot of what you're doing if you're not if you're not traveling down south to help coverage of schools who are, are kind of already getting rolling or just seeing your northern colleges for instance that play southern games early right. in the season a lot of what you're doing is going to be in cages and in indoor facilities and uh, bullpen sessions so I, I think all of that is super valuable yeah i think for younger players you can gain some useful information on that because a player, especially like an underclass player, not that, you know, not that MLB scouts are, are necessarily looking at underclass players so much right now, but uh, like I remember Josh Noth, who's going to be, hey, that is changing though. It is changing. I think people, yeah. have, uh, people have taken you up on your idea, Ben. There are, there are significantly more teams and people I know who are working in the underclass area. And I think that's an area of growth in the industry, which is really cool to see. But Josh Noth, who's a pitcher from New York, you could see his velocity jump last year or whatever it was this time <laughs> a year ago. And that was pretty exciting because he always had really good natural feel for spin on his breaking ball. And now then the velocity was coming on too, and he's super young for his class. And he's, I mean, he's a pitcher I really like for the 2023 draft this year. Um, but I also think sometimes those indoor bullpens you can get fooled on. You definitely and I'm, Especially the on video where you can see, oh, this pitcher is throwing 95 in an indoor bullpen and he's never thrown above 92 before. And you're like, did he yeah. gain velocity or is there some there's some trick at play? <laughs> well, here. I also like there, there are a number of videos, too, that you'll see. I've already seen a few this year of players you'll see the video of the pitcher throwing. You won't see where the ball goes. And then you'll see the reading of uh, the radar gun. It'll be clipped to the video or there'll be a, a little display where the radar gun set up. So you'll see the velocity, but the ball could have been eight feet over the strike zone for all you know, in terms of actually seeing it. So you, you definitely can be fooled, which is why the game looks are always going to be better. But in terms of the process of, of what a player is doing, there are things you can take, I think. But I'm yeah, trying to think of the uh, who was the northern kid a few years ago who really blew up because of a lot of offseason workouts. He's a two way player. Jackson Lynn. Exactly. Yes. Jackson Lynn. He's in the 2024 college class. And I remember hearing about his offseason, I think it was bullpens uh, and just the stuff that he was throwing. He was a guy who 
who jumped on the radar. He's at Tulane now, an outfielder and a right-handed pitcher. And I was just hearing about the exit velocities that he was showing in BPs and the pure velocity and the RPMs on his, or yeah, the RPMs on his pitches. He was one guy that definitely jumps out as a player who, who raised some eyebrows because of just the workouts. Yeah. There's all sorts of different tricks you can use to fool people at a workout indoor or outdoor too. I mean, Ben, you're taking you're taking this in the most uh, negative, and, uh, <laughs> underhanded way possible. How to scout with the workout? <laughs> I'm just saying, man. I've been doing this for for long enough to know and and see firsthand different tricks people use. You know, even if you're you know you're at a workout and you know you're there to to see a hitter and the catcher is is there and his buddies are from the same program as the hitter and he's given the hitter the pitches i mean oh wow he really stayed on that breaking ball and smashed it the opposite way yeah well he knew it was coming uh, or throw in you know like we've you know we talked about stuff with catchers before but little things where the distance between between home plate and second base is a little closer than what it should be. And you're like, oh, wow, that, that pop time I got was, was real good. Well, they, they, they snuck the bag in a little. There's, and you're, and there's you're giving people ideas. You're giving away the truth. I know. There's, there's some other – I mean, there's some other good ones that I actually – yeah, I mean, I don't want to say because I don't want it to – I don't want it to spread, but, I mean, we could have – you we could have at, a whole episode and, and bring bring some longtime <laughs> scouts on and just go over all the little all the little tricks people I was use to try to fool you. The other night I was scrolling through YouTube shorts as millennials do, and I, I stumbled across this video of someone testing uh, wood bat exit velocities, just a normal wood bat with a corked bat. And he was just taking swings and he got a sample of ten or so swings just to get get an idea of what his average exit velocity was and how significant a change a corked bat could make. And I feel like in this era where data is so meaningful and decisions are made over data, something like using a corked bat in a BP session and having some technology set up to record your exit velocities, that could move the needle for someone who's evaluating you. If you, if you want to dope up and, and get some spider tack in a bullpen session and have a rap soto mm -hmm. to track the RPMs of your breaking ball. It's going to be really hard to figure out that you're using that stuff in a bullpen session, especially if it's a bullpen session that you just recorded on video and you're sending around. Um, but I feel like those are areas where, where people could take advantage and, and be deceitful if they, if they wanted to, I mean, this stuff is out there and, and baseball <laughs> since it's, since its origins, we have a long history of people trying to cheat the game. It's not anything new. Or uh, just so I guess ML, your point I mean, is to be wary. Your your point is these these workouts in the offseason are are not useful, basically. Or just anything. I mean, you always have to be mindful. I always look at the baseballs when I'm at a workout anywhere if I can, because I mean, just look at what MLB has done with the baseballs and how much of a difference the more lively baseballs can make when you hit them. So I see that there was, there was an event a few years ago where there were rumors that the event was using juiced balls to, Oh, I, I know. I mean, I've, 
it's it's yeah. not uncommon in Latin America where you'll see. Oh, like I, they I don't have think these, it's uncommon in America either. <laughs> well, just you know, they just they have these more lively baseballs, and the baseballs travel oh, yeah. there, and they'll use them for BP. And you're like, wow, that like drop really power is legit. <laughs> that, yeah, that really skinny kid just smoked that. Just smoking these baseballs like wood. Oh, right, they're using these baseballs where you know it, it just makes a huge difference. The ball sometimes where where the velocity off the bat the distance it goes can make a, a big difference if you're if you're not paying close attention to to what they're using yeah the off season is a fun time so uh i guess be uh be wary everyone out there don't trust don't trust what you see um ben i wanted to talk about some news that actually broke right before we started recording on this podcast and feel free to if there's anything else you wanted to mention about off season stuff workouts we, we can touch on that too. I didn't want to cut you off or anything, but if, if we're done with that convo, then cut away. Let's, let's talk about um, the Dana Brown hiring. Uh, the Astros announced right before we started recording this podcast that they were hiring Dana Brown as their general manager. He was previously the vice president of scouting for the Atlanta Braves, and we can talk through some of the draft classes that he's had, but it was funny that this happened right before we, start of the podcast because you wanted to touch on just this GM situation with Houston and, and what it even means to, to be a good ownership team. So I'll, I'll kind of let you take this in whichever direction you want to go in first. Um, but Dana Brown moving to the Astros is obviously big news in baseball and it is especially uh, notable for, for our podcast because Dana has had some really good drafts with the Braves. Um, but yeah, take, take this in whatever direction you want to go with. Yeah. I mean, obviously the Astros have had as much success as any organization in baseball over what the last seven or so years with some mm-hmm. obvious caveats within that time frame. but they're, you know, world series, champions and yet the Dodgers in terms of success and yet at the same time it just seems like an organization especially at the top that just seems so dysfunctional right I mean you're you're coming off a World Series you forced out uh, your your previous GM and I'm not saying James Click had some great responsibility for building that Astros championship team I mean that was Jeff Lunau's fingerprints all over it. I'm not, you know, praising or, um, you know, defending anything, you know, Lunau did or, you know, I'm, I'm not giving an opinion on that. I'm just saying it's pretty clear that the whole roster, for the most part, was built by Lunau and his group. And, you know, they kind of rode that to, to a championship, but it's pretty uncommon to see. <laughs> I mean, scandal aside, a, a team that has had that much success immediately, you know, part ways with its general manager the way the Astros did. And it didn't, I mean, to me, as strange as it sounds like for, for a team that's had that much success, it doesn't seem like all that appealing of a job to, yeah. to me. If you're, you know, if you're an up and coming general manager candidate in your your 30s or your 40s and you have a pretty good sense that hey there's going to be some you know a a gm job in my future like is that the one you would want to 
jump at to to work for Jim Crane and work in that environment for that ownership group. Um, so it just seems like such a strange situation, and and then that they didn't even have a a new GM in place until until just now at the Literally very, today. very yeah. end of January. Yeah, all the prep stuff that we're talking about, you don't even have your GM in place to do that for your big league team. No, it is a it is definitely a weird situation. I know there have been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of good reporting and writing on the topic and kind of the dysfunction in the front office or, or really the ownership with Houston. It is very weird that that James Click left immediately after winning a World Series and. I mean, everything that I've heard about what he's done, it sounds like he would be a great guy to be in charge of any team. He made a bunch of savvy moves, even though, as you mentioned, the team was largely a championship team in place when he was taking over. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to evaluate a lot of this from from our perspective, but I'm curious what your ideal ownership situation is, whether that's for a team that you're a fan of or as someone who's working under an ownership group, I mean, I think it's pretty simple from a fan perspective, like what is your ideal ownership? And to me, it's just, are you spending money and are you staying out of the way of the front office? So kind of prepping for this convo, I had just pulled the team payroll information from, I think the last three years from, from Spotrack, you can get all of that for free. So I pulled that just to see, and it's it's the usual suspects that you would see at the top. It's the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Mets, the Phillies, the Padres as your top five in terms of average rank of team payroll each year in that span. So this is recent years, but I think a lot of these teams would hold up even going back like the last decade. And then six through 10 is the Astros, the Red Sox, the Giants, the Angels, and the Braves. And, and for me, if I'm a fan really the only thing I want ownership to do is invest in the team and try to win. And that feels like a very low bar, but you see so many teams don't operate in that fashion. Uh, so if, if, if I'm a fan of a team, I would be thrilled with Dodgers ownership. I'd be thrilled with new Mets ownership. I'd be thrilled with historically what the Yankees have done. What, I mean, especially the Padres, I think the Padres might even be the best example because they are a team that everyone like to call small market. I mean, it is a small market relative to the other 30 teams. Um, but the owner has clearly wanted to win and is willing to spend money to bring in star players. And the Padres immediately became competitive because of that. And the atmosphere around San Diego is significantly cooler now than it was in 2016 when I was there and their, their team wasn't this good. Um, so from a fan perspective, I think it's very simple. Like, are you putting money into the team? Are you trying to get it better? Are you trying to attract star players? Are you trying to retain the star players you're developing? Um, I think it's it's very different from an employment standpoint. There are a lot of other factors that I think would matter there. But I'm curious if you think it's it's just as simple as, are you putting up a big payroll from a fan perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, are you putting up a big payroll and are not not just a big payroll, but are you just spending overall on ways to improve your team? Now MLB has you know, and the union has acquiesced to it, has put in more and more limitations on where you can spend that money, not just in the I major league. I always like to team. say these these team owners 
all succeeded in capitalism, then they bought their baseball teams and they no longer wanted to participate in capitalism. Well, some of them were inherited. And that's true <laughs> that too. They, they in, are, in they are victors cases. of capitalism in, in, in all cases, not necessarily their own by their own hand. How about yeah, that? Some of them succeeded in the uh, ovarian lottery, I suppose. So, um, and, and I, and I think that's where you see a lot of owners where, <laughs> <laughs> the fans are, are not thrilled with them in in many cases, but I think it's yeah it's, it's spending you know spending and scouting on staff, player development, technology, um, analytics, all sorts of things you know training staff, everything off the field too that you can spend on is important. It matters, um, but also yeah stop don't be too meddling in the organization and and you have to want to win i mean there are so many stories from people in front offices talking about how ownership has nixed you know this trade for some reason uh they just went out and signed a, a player against the advice of the front office which you know that's it, it, the right of the owner to do uh but even little things like having input on when a player should come back from the injured list, just stuff that is, it just seems so silly for an owner to be involved in. But the owner that's I mean, that's, it's their team. They can do, they can do what they want. And it has a huge influence on, on the success of that team. And I think if, yeah, like you said, if, if, if you, if you asked fans like which, current team's ownership group would you want to own your favorite team i mean i, th I think you gave some of your picks i would say yeah mine would it'd probably be the mets right with mm -hmm. steve cohen who's oh yeah Met, i mean mets fans had to be throwing a party every day at this point it seemingly no players on the table for them yeah oh i mean compared to the will ponds it's you know you yeah. have a gazillionaire who wants to do whatever it takes to win uh, the Dodgers, who again are, are spending a, a ton of money. The Padres are are the same way, and they're not slowing yep, down. Sidler. This year, Peter I mean, Seidler, you can we got Mark Walter as the principal owner of the Dodgers, the Guggenheim Group, Cohen. Those would all be up there. Um, yeah, continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Just wanted to to put names. No, I was going to say like that might be about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who I don't know if, if there's somebody else that would belong in that group um, for you yeah just kind of scanning down i mean i would be curious to know how happy exactly astros fans are now because even with everything we've said the team has been very successful so is this a case where they're just fine they don't they don't care about any of the drama they just want to watch a winning team they're not fans of the astros because they're fans of jim crane they're fans of the team and the team's been good and it's as simple as that like, would you be happy in that situation? Or do you, do you want all that stuff to just not, not be an issue in the first place as a fan? Because again, they've been incredibly successful. I mean, yeah. Once you get past that, I don't, I don't really know. The Braves have been a good team for the last five years, but I don't know that Liberty media do you, itself is. Do you think Braves fans are thrilled with Liberty media's ownership? No, it, it really feels Braves? more like Alex Anthopoulos has done an excellent job acquiring stars that the player development and scouting groups have 
have acquired for the team and, and he's extending that talent to team friendly contracts. And if those players, for whatever reason, if they didn't like Atlanta, if Anthopolis didn't do such a good job with these deals, like they could be in a much different situation because none of the big players the Braves have are, are free agent guys uh, or free agent signees. I know there's been a lot of talk about Liberty Media increasing the payroll of the Braves. And if that happens, I could see a lot of people being happy with the ownership situation because as the team is ready to compete and is successful, the the money kind of follows. But I don't know. I, I don't imagine Liberty Media is a, is a an ownership group that you would point out and be like, yeah, we really are excited about no, Media. I would. But, but at the same time, I think that's a that's one ownership group where they're largely not involving themselves in baseball decisions, which is a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a savvy fair. front office. So I don't know. There, there are pros and cons to to some of these. I would I would say that the number of fan bases that uh, generally like or or generally dislike their their ownership group is is in the 20s i i think there's a very small number you're saying you're saying 20 percent or thereabouts no no no. the uh, out of 30 no 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 out of yeah i don't know out of 20 teams gotcha yeah out of 30 teams the number of fan bases that in general dislike if not worse their ownership (laughs) group their team's ownership group the number of those teams is in in the 20s I, i mean look at the the angels just this week announced that uh, Artie Moreno is not going to sell the Angels, and they just got completely dogpiled by their own fans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, please, please, and and he has spent money yes. on on the team too on free agents. Um, not saying it's a well run organization or that he's been, you know, a good owner, yeah, uh, or somebody who had you know a lot of people seem to you know not that they enjoy working there either so i don't think i don't think um people are thrilled with baltimore's owner at the moment (laughs) no (laughs) i mean it seems last two weeks that he had just getting into public feuds with reporters and that that wasn't a great look yeah are we getting are they sending you the financials this week carlos is that how it's it was we were told that he was opening the books and reporters could come check it out has that was supposed to have already happened yeah, I think it's not going to happen, but well, how do you got another 24 hours to go, right? I mean, I Oakland, do you think Oakland a- A's fans? I mean, well, I want to run down the bottom teams. I, I told you the top the 10 worst owners, okay, payroll. Well, not necessarily the worst owners, but at least the worst owners in terms of are you spending any money? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see here. So, again, this is just the last three years of data because that's all I could scrape uh, before the podcast on, on Spotrack. But going from last place up to 21st, it is the Baltimore Orioles, who notoriously have been a very bad team recently. Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Oakland A's, uh, who seemingly are doing everything they can to not be a good team. The Tampa Bay Rays, who are an exception to this first group. The Miami Marlins, the Cleveland Guardians, Kansas City Royals, Seattle Mariners, Detroit Tigers, and the Arizona Diamondbacks. So, I mean, a lot of these teams are teams that are clearly tanking, but there are a few teams here that that have been consistently good at the major league level. And from my in my mind, the ownership is the only thing holding them back. The the Rays and the Guardians are are obviously the examples there. And I guess yeah, we'll see you... what the Mariners do now that they're good if they start spending more. And they're they're not at the bottom of this list, but they're 
they're in the bottom third over the last three years. I mean, I, I have tremendous admiration for the work that the Guardians front office has done to build that team. Can you imagine if they had the resources that, you know, let's throw out the Dodgers and Mets right yeah. now, just that, that the Padres were ownership <laughs> is putting into that club? Yeah. I mean, if again, only like Cleveland I, had the money that the major market San Diego team has. Well, it's, it's just another, it's like an example where, yeah, I mean, even if you're having success, it's, it seems like it's in spite of ownership and not because do of you, it. I don't think Guardians fans are happy. Do you think there's their, anything to the, the argument that some people will make that, that Cleveland and Tampa Bay has such an efficient process because they've had to overcome spending limitations? And so that's made them get a lot more creative uh, invest a lot more in personnel and player development systems and scouting. Do you think there's any truth at all to that? Or is that just an excuse for not spending? Do you think basically they would be equivalent in all these areas if you had just given them a top 15 payroll? Um, Cause I think I, there I don't is, know. I think, I think there is some creativity that, that you almost have to, you have to be creative and you have to be better in a lot of these areas to compete if you, if you're not on the same financial footing. So I think there's something to it, but Certainly, if you give them a lot of money, I think both the Guardians and the Rays would be talked about how we talk about the Dodgers. When when you have constraints on you, it it forces more creativity in some ways, and if you're, it, it also forces you to build from within with younger players. And when other teams are going out and signing these kind of mid range type free agents for quite a bit of money who are in their 30s and on the back end of their career when you'd be better off trying to develop your own homegrown players for at, at less cost and just, and not so much even for less cost but just when they're in their prime years in their 20s when they're on the way up yeah i think that's a good thing but the dodgers are a great example where you're taking you know a lot of the you know, some of the people, obviously, with Andrew Friedman, and I'm sure similar processes. And then, oh, yeah, adding a whole lot more money on top of it. It's even it's even better when you can do that. Yes. So, Ben, you've been constrained in the sense that you have to do this podcast with me. How do you think you've become better as a person and a podcaster because of that? Well, it, it just forces me to try to really carry the carry the podcast and, and carry the <laughs> see it's a good thing sometimes you know every it's, day it's how about but, from how about from an employment standpoint what, what sort of ownership would you want if you're working for a team because i do think in many ways the owner would be less of a factor for me than who i would actually be working with and and, and so that would be the culture of the front office or scouting department um, obviously stability in general would be uh, a positive in baseball because of the industry in general, especially if we're talking about scouting here, because presumably that'd be the easiest, uh, translation you could make for yourself. Just imagining yourself on a baseball team when, when the higher ups change over a lot of the times that trickles down to the people they've hired below you. So I would imagine if you're an employee, you want solid stability up top. You want people that you can work with. You want to have the resources to do your job. I mean, how related do you think it is thinking about this as an employer, employee of a team to the, the same ownership conversation? Because I don't think it's as simple as, are you just paying a ton of money? Because I think 
the Royals would maybe be a good example of a team that I feel like from the outside looking in has, has treated scouts in particular pretty well. They, sure. they have a big department. Um, I think scouts have a lot of say in what, what they're doing. And I also think too, another element to this is just, is the work you're doing, does it matter? Like, do you feel like you're moving the needle for, for your organization? Cause I, I've heard from a lot of scouts who, who have either left the industry or are burnt out and tired of it because they feel like everything they're doing could be done by someone just carrying around a camera and, and the models have kind of taken over the, the job of what they previously did. Uh, so there's lots of elements to get into here and it doesn't necessarily have to be scouting specifically, but I, I just feel like that was the most natural area to think about if, if we were working for the team. So what would be the elements that, that you're kind of looking for as an employee? I think it probably also just depends how high up the chain you're looking, right? If you're just getting your foot in the door, especially like it's, it's probably not going to be a big deal. If you really want to work for one of the 30 teams in major this, league baseball, I'm glad you brought this up and I want to ask it just really quickly. So I don't forget, but when you'd mentioned the, the GM job and would you want to have would you, if you're an aspiring GM and you're you're basically one of the candidates to move into a GM position, would you be picky about the Astros job? Do you think that it, in in some sense it's like there's only 30 of these jobs, so you just need to take the one if you get an opportunity, regardless of it being perceived as a good or bad GM job? I think it depends who you are, what your what your status is in life, your your you know your personal and family situation, obviously plays into it because you're, you're you know you might more likely are going to be moving as well so um you know I, I like there are people right now who i think could be uh you know could could get gm jobs who are just like for family reasons don't want that additional stress and that's why you've and, turned them down right right and responsibility in their life um which is understandable and like you know if you're an assistant gm you're you're making a lot of money right now right like you're probably making two three four hundred you know more than that um per per year so yeah like you know gms are, are are making more it's a good bump up but there's even more stress and you know public facing stuff that comes with a gm job so if you think yeah if if it's if it's not an ideal situation like if you know, you know the reds have a gm right now but like that just seems like a, again another ownership group that fans are not not thrilled with but if you know if you know you're getting older and and you're not uh you know you don't really have other you don't have other teams calling you to become a gm and you think this is your one opportunity to get a shot then yeah you're probably more likely to to go for it that makes sense but if you're in your your 30s or your 40s and there's a gm job opening in you know like the houston job opening where yeah it seems like the owner likes to meddle in a lot of things how much influence are you actually gonna have is is he just going to um you know his other confidants within the organization when it comes to making decisions is david stern's gonna come in soon and and maybe and and take your 
your job and, and come back to Houston that way. So there's all sorts of factors in there. So if, when, when you get to the higher levels, especially if you're still young and, uh, you know, I don't, I think a lot of people don't think of like, you know, your thirties or forties even maybe as as young and it, you know, it depends on your perspective, but if you're, you know, if you're 42, you can probably still work in baseball for another, you know, 20, 30 plus years. That's, that's a long, long time. So, um, if you have, you know, you, you know, your skill set uh, is, is in demand and you think there are other opportunities that can come along in the future for you, then I, I think you, you can, and you should be picky about the opportunities that come up. But again, even still, like there's only, if you want to be a GM or, or you know, team president, whatever the top title is in, in, in a given organization's baseball operations department, there's only 30 ownership mm-hmm. groups and a lot of them are, are uh, come with a lot of flaws. No doubt. Let, let's talk about a little bit about Dana Brown specifically and, and what he did with the Braves, what we can expect him to do with the Astros and maybe even how this will impact or, or could impact Atlanta. Because if you look at Dana Brown's track record as the guy in charge of their drafts from 2019 to 2022, it's a lot of really strong draft years. I'll just go over a few of the the drafts and a few of the picks in the drafts. In 2019, which was his first year in charge, uh, first round pick at number nine overall was Shea Langoliers. They had a second first rounder. Um, this was the year they got a pick for Carter Stewart, not signing. Um, they took Braden Shoemake a shortstop out of Texas A&M at 20 or at 21 overall, excuse me. And then really getting into the good stuff here. Michael Harris was drafted as an outfielder in the third round at the time. He was a two-way player out of Georgia. A lot of scouts liked him on the mound more. If you look at our scouting report for him at the time, there was more information about what he did on the mound than what he did as a hitter. And obviously now Michael Harris is, is not a pitcher. He was a phenomenal center fielder this past year, gold glove, caliber defense, great all-around player. Um, A few picks later, Vaughn Grissom was drafted in the 11th round out of Haggerty High School. He wasn't even the best high school player on his team at this point. That would have been Riley Green. Um, And he was just an overslot high school player who had some interesting tools at the time and has turned into potentially a, a solid everyday big leaguer. 2020, which may be the most impressive draft of this, the the entire group of four that we're going to talk about here. It, and it's going to be weird to think through the 2020 draft in the future. How do we really assess it? But I don't think there's ever been a draft class that has had a 100% hit rate in terms of big leaguers. And because it was a shortened draft, because the Braves also only had four picks, they didn't have a second round pick they have a real chance to have 100% big leaguers with this draft. They took Jared Schuster in the first round at 25 overall at Wake Forest. They took Jesse Franklin out of Michigan in the third round, number 97 overall. They took Spencer Strider out of Clemson in the fourth round, 126 overall, who we didn't even have on the BA 500 at the time. We took, or, or they took Bryce Elder in the fifth round out of Texas, number 156 overall. So Strider and Elder are both already big leaguers. Schuster is probably going to pitch in the big leagues this year. And it wouldn't shock me if Jesse Franklin also got some time in the big leagues this year, considering 
the big league uh, roster right now. I mean, that draft is crazy. I, I can go on and touch on a little bit more, Ben, but 2021, two picks that jump out right away. Justin Henry Malloy in the sixth round out of Georgia Tech. He was kind of a solid college player who really took off this past year, was traded, not in the org now, but a good pick. AJ smith Shaver in the seventh round, overslot high school pitcher, kind of an old school sort of Braves pick, now the top prospect in the system. And then the 2022 draft, a trio of talented high school pitchers, and then one later pick who could pop and is, is a sleeper pick for me personally this year, Ignacio Alvarez, a third baseman out of Riverside Junior College in California in the fifth round. Look out for him. But I think that's a pretty good track record as someone in charge of a draft. What, what do you say to all of that? Yeah, right. It sounds kind of strange to think about because the Braves have, I'd say, the worst farm system in baseball. But that's yeah. also just because guys like Michael Harris and – uh, Von Grissom and Spencer Strider just yep. kind of zoomed to the big leagues yep. <laughs> so so quickly, right? Like we and, could, and guys could... like Shea Langoliers uh, and Ryan Cusick uh, and others were involved in trades for for guys like Matt Olson and Sean Murphy. So they have used a lot of these draft picks in trades to acquire other players. But I think that's still the fact that you were able to use those prospects is a win for you. Yeah, and and Alex Anthopoulos is our executive of the year and I, I just think a very you know obviously a very talented executive and he seems to have pretty good judgment for a lot of things and clearly he's somebody who very highly valued the work that dana brown has has done throughout the years so i think that's a, a good point in his favor um as well i mean what does this do now for for the Braves, though, as far as the future of their drafts, what does the what is the impact of losing him? Does things just kind of continue uh, like businesses as usual? What how does that affect them? I mean, there's no way we can know with 100 percent certainty. Right. So we'll have to just see what happens. But I tend to think that the Braves have pretty good systems and processes for what they do. And it's not like before the Dana Brown era the Braves struggled to draft Brian Bridges heading the scouting department for years produced mm -hmm. a ton of really good picks, uh, a, a ton of pitchers Ian Anderson, uh, Austin Riley was a pick before the Dana Brown era, Max Freed. Like I just think the Braves have always been a good scouting team and a good developing team. And I don't really know why anyone would assume that it's all downhill from here because Dana Brown's gone. Uh, I, I just think, for whatever reason, I mean, there are a lot of scouts that have been scouting for the Braves across all of these um, different leaders and different directors that are still going to be there. Um, so I think having a lot of those veteran scouts in place still is going to help you sustain some continuity here. I, I don't necessarily think that that everything is going to change um, just because the head guy is gone. So I, I would be optimistic that the things will still continue on as normal. I mean, We've seen in other organizations, I think Cleveland and Tampa Bay are both good examples. You lose a lot of, of talented people in the front office to other teams, and, and both those teams kind of just keep plugging along. So I think if your processes and your systems are good and you still have good people throughout the organization, there's really no reason to me to think that, that things would kind of fall off from here. So that's where I'm at and until proven otherwise. What about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm curious to see also just in Houston now, 
how he will change the way the Astros scout. And I, I think that's already started to change from when James Click took over for Lunau. The Astros did things very differently when Lunau was there compared to other organizations, the way they would scout areas. Uh, they just had fewer scouts than other clubs. I think it I think it hurt them, and I think the, the you know you saw James Click come in, and the Astros hired more scouts. So I'm I'm curious just to see what's the, the this, not only just the number of people mm-hmm. that he brings in, but the, you know the specific people themselves and 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 the yeah. roles that they're hired to do as well. It does seem like the Braves did a little bit of that that cutting on the scouting side when Alex yeah. Anthopoulos and Dana Brown came in, but it. It feels like it wasn't as extreme as Houston. I, I would have to know how to have the numbers actually laid out in front of me. But, I mean, you definitely heard about a lot of people with the Braves um, losing jobs at the time when, when that transition happened. They, they certainly weren't amongst the um, biggest scouting departments in baseball. There was much more of an uh, analytical bent that came into the scouting department during that transition. So it feels like from the outside looking in and not knowing entirely what happens there, obviously, that that it's a, a solid blend of, of old school scouting and um, new analytics and, and different systems in, in that regard. But it's also just hard to say from this perspective, especially with even when Josh Norris will look through um, the directory each year and just kind of see how scouting departments go up and down in terms of total people. The, the titles just being different each year makes that difficult to do a, a one-to-one comparison. Um, but th- that's kind of where I'm at from the outside looking in, just having talked with people in the industry. It, it feels like it's a decent blend of old school and new school. Um, I could be wrong, but it it will be interesting to see what exactly the scouting department makeup is like, like a year from now under Dana Brown. Cause I don't think in a lot of, in a lot of these situations, it's not like things change immediately. I think even when Alex Anthopoulos took over, Brian Bridges was still in charge of the scouting department for a year or maybe even a little more than a year. Yeah, and again, and it, the owner I'm sure will play a significant role in that. I mean, I'm you know there are teams that want to do things different ways, and if your owner says no, then <laughs> you're 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 out of luck. Yep. Yeah, you can't do too much. Um, do you want to talk some players, Ben? Yeah, yeah, I like players. Yeah, we have uh, we've talked more more about the the industry today than players itself, which is. Maybe unusual for our last few podcasts, but we do like players. The whole reason we do all this is because of players. We've gone through a few different positions recently. Uh, we talked about shortstops, which are the best in baseball. We talked about some catchers. Uh, today, I did a stock watch, or not today, but this week, it's up on BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, if you want to check it out, I did a stock watch on corner infielders. So I wanted to know if you had any corner infielders you wanted to talk about. And, it's weird. I, I classify third baseman and first baseman as corner infielders because in the amateur space, especially on the high school side, if you broke it into third base and first baseman, you'd almost never get enough first baseman to talk about. So we kind of lump them both together. And, and corner infield really is the power position. I was looking at just how the hitting statistics broke down at the big league level. And in terms of WRC plus, at least third base and first base was responsible for the best overall hitters in the league. 
um, which I was a little surprised about. I expected right field to actually be better than third base. Um, but this is the position you go to if you want power further down the defensive spectrum. And at least on the pro side, it's very typical to not have a lot of these guys in the top 100. Uh, but I think on the draft side of things, at least for the 2023 class, it's a solid year. There's no Spencer Torkelson or Chris Bryant kind of at the top leading the way. But we currently have four players ranked in the first round range, um, two college players, three college players, excuse me. And then I think when we update our rankings in a week, we'll have five with another high school player joining the group. But guys like Braden Taylor at Texas Christian, Johanny Morales at Miami, Brock Wilkin at Wake Forest provide a lot of power and offensive not certainty, but a lot of offensive confidence in this 2023 draft class. And then you've got one of my, I think he's probably ranked too high to be a personal cheese ball, but Aiden Miller out of Florida on the high school side has, has been one of my favorite hitters in the class. And I think he has a great combination of, of pure hitting ability and power. And then the guy who I think is probably going to be in this first round range a week from now and is not right now, but that's Bryce Eldridge, um, who's actually like 15 minutes away from me here. In Virginia. So I'm excited to see a ton of him this spring. Bryce Eldridge is, is a really fascinating prospect because entering the summer, and I'm curious what your perspective of, of him was as an underclassman, Ben, because entering the summer, I thought of him as a, a solid pitching prospect who also had a ton of power, but wasn't really a, a hitting prospect at the next level, or at least the upside of his, his pitching was quite a bit ahead of his hitting. Uh, he went nuclear with Team USA on both sides of the ball, but it was his hitting that really opened a lot of eyes in the scouting community and has shot him up boards. And there are a lot of people who are really, really excited about the upside potential and just the power and the physicality uh, and a lot better hitting instincts than I think teams thought at the beginning of the summer. So there's a lot of names I threw at you. I was rambling quite a bit, probably not good for, for the podcast to do so, Ben, but Take, take it away. Do you, what do you think of Bryce Eldridge? What do you think of the corner infield? Um, the corner I like Bryce infield. Eldridge a lot on the mound. I mean, yeah, I, I he's like 6'7", pushing 6'8", mm-hmm. throwing up to 96. Pretty good feel for, for pitching, especially for such a young, long-limbed kid, probably because yeah. he's been like 6'6", six six since he was 14. So he's <laughs> had some time to... Uh, you know, adjust and get used to that build. I think he's made some good adjustments with his mechanics to get his lower half into his delivery more, uh, which has helped his velocity. I think there's even more to come. And coming into the last year, I I would have said, yeah, pitcher all the way. He does Mm -hmm. have big power. But, I mean, he, he has looked really good as a hitter too. Now he's... The, the position-wise, he's going to have to either be a corner outfielder or a first baseman, so the bar is really high for how much he's going to have to hit. But he has a good swing, and he's he's really athletic too. I think that's the thing that I underrated with him yeah. coming into the year is how athletic he is. You can well, see it on the mounds. You, you, you can see it in the of... – yeah, go Sorry, ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, you could see it in the field, too, just the way he fields his position. At first base, he's he's a good defender 
over there, quick reactions off the bat, and it's a very it's a very fast, very athletic looking swing too. So, you know, he's still six foot seven. There's gonna be holes that come with it, and he's gonna have to hit a ton as a you know, probably a first baseman if he goes the position player route, but I'm I'm a lot more intrigued by him now as a position player than I was a year ago. That said, I think he's one of the best pitching prospects in yeah. the 2023 high school class. So I, I don't know. I I I might give him a chance to do the two way thing mm-hmm. in pro ball, but I'm still I think most excited about his future on the mound. Yeah. I kind of go back and forth about this because I, I watched Team USA and I saw him hit and, and the hitting with Team USA was certainly more impressive than the pitching. But I think everything you said about him as a pitcher is is kind of what I thought as well. I was always really impressed with the body control on the mound, how well he repeated the delivery considering how big he was. And they're different body types and I think they're different movers. But Bryce Eldridge has a lot in common with Spencer Jones at the same time out of high school. He was a guy who... Mm was a two-way player, six foot six at the time. Maybe he was already six foot seven. I liked him more than as a pitcher. He was a left-handed thrower, which is different, um, but they're both left-handed hitters. Um, and Spencer Jones always stood out as a guy who was crazy athletic and moved super well. I think Spencer Jones moved better than Bryce Eldridge does now because, because of his athleticism, but they're both very athletic two-way players who might wind up being better hitters than pitchers and Spencer at the same time, Spencer Jones, I I was much more confident in him definitely being a pitcher at the next level. He obviously had an arm injury that, that changed the trajectory of his career, but Spencer Jones we're talking about now is one of the biggest post draft risers after what he did in pro ball. He had a platform year at Vanderbilt. I think that's an interesting comparison to make. And I'm, I'm just fascinated to see what his path is going to be like moving forward because you look at him in the, on the mound and it's probably two above average pitches and a fastball and a slider, good control, easy plus power as a hitter. I think he could be a very good defensive first baseman and considering his athleticism, it, it wouldn't shock me if he just wound up being a better runner in a few years than, than we're expecting him to be and also could move around in the outfield pretty well. Guys like Spencer Jones, I mean, being able to potentially play a little center makes me a little optimistic about this, this profile in general just outperforming my expectations, but he's one of the most fascinating players in the class. And I'm pumped. I'm so close to his high school here in Vienna. Yeah. What about, you mentioned Aiden Miller to high school, third baseman in Florida and on the older end of the class. And also he's just been for a long time, just one of the best hitters, one of the best performers, a ton of bat speed, power, um, just a lot to like with him, especially at the plate. A ton to like. He was one of the better hitters on that Team USA squad with Eldridge. I think he was, he led the team in hitting, had two home runs. Eldridge had three. But he's played for Team USA going back to the 15U team. I think he was even on the 12U team. So he he's had a long track record with the national teams, has always hit well. I think it's... Walker Jenkins and then Aiden Miller. If you're talking about hit power combinations in the high school class, I think you could easily see sixties for, for both Miller's hitting ability and his power potential. You mentioned the bat speed. It's gotta be some of the best bat speed in the class. 
I don't think he's going to be a great defender at third base, but I think he'll be a, a serviceable one and a capable one. He's got one of the better throwing arms of the infielders in this class as well. So there are some tools that can play at the position nicely. And I just think he's going to hit. And so the age doesn't bother me. We had the age conversation with Brett Beatty, with Bobby Witt Jr. For, for players who are in this tier of prospect and have this sort of track record, I really just think you draft them and you can push them aggressively. In a few years, they're no longer old for their level. They could be much younger than the level, and, and we forget about the age really quickly. I don't, I don't know that many people are talking about Brett Beatty or Bobby Wood Jr. or even Jared Kelnick, who, who hasn't figured out the majors. The, the whole age conversation disappeared pretty quickly once they got into pro ball and started moving up rapidly. So that one doesn't bother me too much. There's nothing about like the projection you would need to do on him that would be concerning to me is he a guy I don't think he's a player who just got better than everyone earlier and now is capped out and there's no room for growth I think he's legitimately one of the better offensive prospects in the class so yeah I think he he was better than everyone early which which is true but but to to your point he's not somebody who's just some early physical mature exactly player who's just beating up on younger players his whole life you know what you see and you could pick apart his swing a little bit, I suppose, but it's not mm-hmm. like anybody has questions about his yeah. his bat speed or his power. Uh, and, and the hit ability the has, has always been there, too. You mentioned the swing. If you watch a- Aiden Miller's swing, and we have some video of this, I believe, on, on YouTube. So check out the Baseball America YouTube for that. He has a very prominent hand hitch in his swing. And I guess typically that's a, a red flag or at least a concern, maybe not a red flag for players but I, I talked to some scouts about this specifically just asking like hey is this this is a concern to you and they were like honestly no if you look at his timing and his pure bat speed it, he almost uses the hand hitch as a timing mechanism maybe in the same way that that gary sheffield's bat waggle was a timing mechanism for him i don't think it's the same bat speed but it's certainly some of the best bat speed in the class and so the fact that he has hit good pitching the fact that he can catch up to velocity I just think he's a well-rounded hitter and the hitch to this point has not been an issue and is almost just kind of how he's able to get on time. It's more of a timing mechanism than some mechanical cue he'll have to overcome or simplify in my mind. What do you think about that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think as long, you know, as long as you're hitting, well, it's a timing mechanism. And then when you start struggling then everyone starts (laughs) calling it a hitch, (laughs) I think that's, that's that's just generally the case for, for hitters, I mean, with high school third, sort of the high school third baseman, to some extent, with some of the college guys too, uh, especially the bigger bodied college guys, are they are they trickier to evaluate sometimes because the I I think third base is an extremely underrated position in terms of the degree of difficulty involved to play that position. Like you can't just be some big bodied slow mover who you just plop over at third base. I know there are some guys who have done that. <laughs> yeah. In in the big leagues, but like you, you got some like real monsters over there, like Nolan Arenado, Matt Chapman, Adrian Beltre, uh, you know, Scott Rowland is in the Hall of Fame, just a super defender over there but just you know you look across baseball there's some really good mm-hmm. athletes and really good defenders at third base and we think of 
you know, the premium positions, the up the middle guys we talk about, can a guy yeah. stay in the middle of the field at, you know, at shortstop or center field or, uh, or even second base. But then we kind of lump guys in as like, oh, he's a corner guy. But to me, there's, I mean, there's a huge difference between a guy who can play third base and especially if you can play third base well versus, well, he, he's going to have to move to first base or, uh, you know, spe- you know, maybe move to left field. The the offensive bar there is just going to be higher than if you're, you know, say a shortstop who might not have the arm for the position, and and you have to go over to second base. And and especially at the high school level, you're you're trying to project a long ways away. And if you know, if a guy's at shortstop, a lot of times, you know, you probably already know that they're going to move to third base and pro ball, whereas if a guy's already at third base and pro ball, he's already probably on the bigger end, and you're generally you're generally not looking at a high school third baseman and being like, wow, this guy's a great defender at third base, because if he was, he'd be at shortstop most likely. So, I mean, we see like with Jordan Walker now, who's moving to the outfield, and it doesn't seem like it's going to matter for him because it seems like he's – He's so good. At, you yeah. Know, you can put and I think even anywhere. another one would be like a Tristan Cassis. He was drafted as a third baseman. I mean, he played a mm-hmm. little bit of both in high school. I think even then people were calling him a first baseman, but he was drafted as a third baseman. And then you move down the defensive spectrum. I think to your point, the reason it is so tricky is because it is very uncommon to move up the defensive spectrum in pro ball. There are not many Cal Ripkins who are drafted as third baseman and start their minor careers at third base and then become all world shortstops. It's just much more common to go the other way. There are many more examples I would imagine of guys like Manny Machado or Chipper Jones or insert here, your shortstop who was drafted and then became an excellent defensive third baseman. I mean, most of those guys, I'm curious, Nolan Arenado, I can't remember off the top of my head where he started his career. It wouldn't surprise me if he was just a shortstop um, prior to, to being a great third baseman. We might even see this with Carlos Correa or with some other guys in the future, but I, I think the reason this position is you don't see as many of them at the top of lists on the amateur side is because like you mentioned, the bar is so high for you as a hitter. If, if you're not, if you're playing third base on your high school team, why are you playing third base on your high school team? Presumably it, there's a better defender at shortstop. And if you're not the best defender on your high school team, there's a very low chance that you're going to be the best defender on a better team with much better players at the next level. So it's all about the hitting ability uh, and you have to feel very confident in a, a player hitting to that caliber to draft him high. So I think a few years ago, Matt Eddie was telling me about the, the really strong track record of, I think it was specifically college third baseman drafted among the top 10 picks that demographic mm. for whatever reason or not, whatever reason, I think there are reasons for it, but that demographic has a very strong success rate. And I think it is, is kind of, gets to this conversation of if you're drafting that profile that high, you feel very confident in the bat and they have proven the hitting ability at a high level. And you feel confident that, okay, you're not getting an up the middle player who has flexibility to just move down the defensive spectrum and and still play a a premium defensive position. Um, so you you feel confident enough in what they've done that you're just fine with it. He can be a corner. We we feel strongly that he's going to mash. Uh, and I think the power, the power component of this conversation is really important too, because most of these guys that we're talking about here have huge power. 
And a lot of the middle infield prospects that we've talked about and will continue to talk about, the power is much more of a question. And obviously just how the de defensive positions work and how the body types work on the baseball diamond, your hulkier, bigger guys are going to play the corners. So I think it's just a matter of being confident in the hitting ability and knowing that, okay, even if this guy moves to first, are you going to feel okay with what you're getting as a hitter? Brock Wilkin at Wake Forest, some of the biggest raw power in the class. There are questions about whether or not he's the third baseman. Okay, if he's a first baseman, are you fine with someone who has 70 raw power? Do you think he's going to be able to get to that? Where he goes in the draft, people are going to have to answer those questions, and either they're high on the combination of his power and they think he'll stick at third, or they just think he's a good enough hitter with enough impact that even if he does move to first, you're still happy with the pick. So it can be really tricky, but you at basically at this position, you have to mash. Yeah, there's a kid for this year's draft. He's not at third base. He's um, out in California, Ralphie Velasquez. Play some catcher, yeah. you know. He's an up arrow guy. Yeah, plays plays catcher, plays some first base. I, I, I hope he can catch, but he's somebody where, yeah, I, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up just long-term at first base. But he's one where I, I just really like his bat so much that, um, you know, I, I would be comfortable taking him with an early pick. I think he has a really simple, easy, beautiful left-handed swing, great feel for the barrel, and a great approach, too. A lot of young hitters get very pull-happy. He was just so comfortable and so smooth using the opposite field and driving the ball with some impact the opposite way, uh, just a very, a very hitterish look with him where he has a strong arm. So I hope he can catch, but, um, you know, if he goes like the Adrian Gonzalez type route and goes over to first base, yeah. I, I'm, I'm optimistic about his, his bat and being able to, uh, make it work even at, at that position. Yeah. I think he's going to be a very popular name too, because, unlike some of these other guys we're talking about, there's at least a chance that he can catch. And all of a sudden you're talking about a guy who's playing one of the most valuable positions on the diamond. Even if he's not a great defensive catcher, if you can play there, then the bat just looks so much better. But one of the players who I think is also really fascinating in this draft class for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about here is Trey Morgan, who is a first baseman mm. for Louisiana state. And he is, the exact opposite of the profile that you typically associate with corner in general, and especially first base. He's a really strong athlete. He moves really well. He's probably one of the better defensive first basemen that I've seen um, come out of college in, in years. I, I can't think of someone who was more savvy around the bag, had better footwork, athleticism range. He's just an impact defender at first. And Evan typically White. like, what's that? Like Evan White. Yeah, exactly. So, so which is so, why it scares me. <laughs> exactly. So Trey Morgan is an exceptionally polarizing profile because he has hit. It's not like he hasn't hit at LSU for his career. He's hit 341, 427, 494 high average, good on base skills. He's been a leadoff hitter. He's just a weird, unique, not normal profile because he's a good runner on base machine, <laughs> great defensive infielder at first base 
but you look up and he's hit 11 home runs over two years. He hit four home runs, or excuse me, six home runs as a freshman. He hit five as a sophomore in 2022. Um, the exit velocity numbers are just middling. He's not a huge guy. There's not like, it's not like he's a super lanky player who's going to grow into a ton of strength and you can project power on him in the future. No, the power is the real question. And so what does the industry do with a player like that? I think a lot of teams are probably going to draft him and then move him to another position. Can you play further up the defensive spectrum because he's such a good mover? Can he play somewhere in the outfield? Can he play somewhere else in the infield? But he's going to be very hard to figure out. I've already struggled with where we're putting him on rankings throughout the process. And we haven't even started the season. So I think Morgan is an example of like the anti corner infield profile. And because he's played first base at LSU, I don't know what the industry is going to do with him. And I wish he would have played some center field or second base or third base or, or some other position, because I think he probably can because he's such a good athlete. But yeah, yeah how do you evaluate that's... a profile like that, Ben? It's got to scare you first base it's got to be the your ability to get on base and your ability to hit for power that especially defense first type profile like how much how much does how is, much does impact defense at first base move the needle for you there's a reason fielding is at the bottom of the the tool package there yeah i mean it's a good thing to have but i guess like arm just, would be but you got to really hit at first base and that yeah that evan white type profile where everybody's so excited about the defense that you bring it at first base uh that's that's a tough one for me and let me be clear here trey morgan is also quite a bit smaller than evan white is at the time by a few inches and and several dozen pounds i believe he's listed at 63219 now trey morgan is listed at 6'1", 191. I don't remember off the top of my head what Evan White was listed as coming out of college, but the body types are different. You could at least reasonably say like he looks like a typical first baseman. Maybe he'll grow into more power, learn to hit for more power. I don't really think you can do that the same way with Trey Morgan. So he's he's a very strange profile. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> concur. How about the uh, pro corner infielders? Any any third baseman or first baseman who fascinates you on the pro side? I mean, Tristan Tristan Cass is being ranked where he is after being drafted as a corner infield guy, not being someone who moved down the defensive spectrum. I'm really curious to see what sort of hitter he's going to be like at the major league level um, this year. Uh, other guys, obviously Jordan Walker. I mean, is near the top of of our top 100. He's utterly fascinating. I'm trying to just think through some other corner guys. I mean, Miguel any Vargas. jump out to you, or what do you think of the state of corner infielders, third base or first base specifically? I guess we can get into. Yeah, I really like Miguel Vargas with the Dodgers. I remember seeing him play an international tournament when he was uh, was it a 15 and under team, 18? I think it was a 15 and under team. And I was like, ooh, this guy is really, really hitterish. Uh, always has stood out for his bat from a young age. I, I like his his swing, the way it stays through the zone, uh, the the power that he has, the approach. There's just not not too many not too many holes in his game offensively. Has good plate coverage. Is able to square up different types of pitches. Um, you know, it's 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 not monster monster type 
power, but there's... Yeah, I was going to ask about the power because I think I'm lower on him than you are. And the power is why. How much power do you think he's going to get to? Because we just talked about if you're if you're playing these positions, you got to mash. Yeah, I think he can be a you know a twenty plus home run guy. I think there could be some twenty five home run seasons in there. Um, It's uh, the the defense at third base. I've not heard (laughs) great things there, but I think he's just a very polished, very advanced hitter, and I think that's all going to translate at the major league level interesting all right I, i'm probably selling on this one ben but again it's, it's always more fun when we disagree on players he's no camp collier you know <laughs> yeah well we, we don't need it yeah we, we i think we all like uh camp collier i mean the other guy i really like too is kyle manzardo with yeah. the rays there's mm-hmm. I, yeah you, you like him too I mean, just reading JJ's report on his hitting ability was a pretty eye-opening. I know when I initially read it, I was like, hey, man, is he really this good of a hitter? And then you look back at, at everything he's done, and he's kind of just always hit. And I do think he's going to have solid power for the position. Um, he hits the ball hard. He, he's just never not hit. So I just have a lot of confidence in him continuing to hit. I mean, it's not the... It's not the craziest profile. If he doesn't hit, what do you really have here? But this is, we could say the same for pretty much every first base prospect that we're going to talk about. All these guys have to hit. But I think in terms of confidence of the hit tool, he would be near the top of of your list, you would imagine. He did it in double A, he's done it in high A, he did it in college. He's not a great athlete, but again, I, you don't have to be a great athlete to be an impactful first baseman if you're an above average hitter. And he could be a well above average hitter, with above average power, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to have. I would be very happy to have Cal Manzardo in a farm system um, that I was a fan of. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in on Manzardo. Yeah, I think the swing works. There's power behind it. The strike zone discipline is outstanding. He has a career on base percentage close to 430. Uh, career slug over 600. He makes a ton of contact and there's a lot of impact and extra base damage and home run power behind that contact. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, defensively, you know, first base, not going to bring a lot to the table defensively, but offensively. Yeah. I I think he has all the attributes to develop into just a plus overall player at first base because of what he can do as a, as a pure hitter and the power that comes with it too. What do you think about Matt Mervis, who wasn't a guy that's on our top 100, but probably wasn't that far off? I know there are a lot of Cubs fans who probably upset with where we didn't have him ranked, but he he would also be one of the next first basemen in the game that that I would look at as someone who has done a lot of hitting at a high level and is interesting. Maybe doesn't have the tools that you typically would associate with someone that I get really excited about, but. I mean, he's also a Duke product, which is another mark against him. But what do you think about Mervis? Because I think he might be a guy who, if he performs, a lot of people would be like, oh, we told you so. You should have ranked him. What do you like about him and what what holds him back? Why isn't he a guy who fits on a top 100? Yeah, I think, I mean, a great job by the Cubs as an NDFA in that 2020 draft to get him in the organization. 
Um, I think the the bat speed is there. I think the swing can can work for him. Uh, there's some certainly some power in there too, especially against um, you know fastballs. Uh, so you know, it. I think he. I think I don't think he's going to be you know an all star first baseman, but I I think the upside is there for him to. You know, develop into a you know a steady everyday first baseman. I I don't see the you know the star or, or the the bigger upside. I should say with somebody like Kyle Manzardo, who's also a few years younger than Mervis too. So, uh, but I do think Mervis has the ability to to develop into that kind of steady everyday type first baseman. Do you, you think he can be more than than that? No, no, I think that's right. Everything you said, I, I think I would be in line with too. But uh, I am just interested to see if he's one of these maybe late bloomers who people underrated, us us included. Like if he if he overperforms what we think he can be, what's the reason for that? Um, but no, I think everything you said is, is kind of how I think about Mervis, just a solid player who if this is the sort of NDFA you're getting, you're thrilled. Um, and to your point, he'll be entering his age 25 season next year. And also... Uh, just credit to Billy Swoop, who we have listed as the signing scout for Matt Matt Mervis. Um, yeah, those I don't I don't have any other corner infielders in the pro ranks that I was super excited to talk about. Ben, are there any other guys that you wanted to mention? I mean, I would be interested to see what guys like like a Jacob Barry does next year. Does he bounce back from a maybe disappointing pro debut? Just considering his pre-draft track record, I think one interesting name maybe is is Casey Schmidt with the Giants, who would have been a, a fringe 100 guy for us as well, and is another one of these players who is just a a phenomenal defender. And what sort of upside you're you're getting with him is going to depend on how much does he hit and does he have a lot of impact. But I think Casey Schmidt might be the best defensive player that we've talked about here at a position where you don't have a ton of great defenders. Uh, Trey Morgan yeah, yeah, he was one who stands out to me because, again, like you said, and you know, Jacob Barry's a good example of that. It's it's a lot of guys who you know we like offensively, and there are questions about whether they're going to stay at third base long term. Whereas with Casey Schmidt, he he's just one of the best defenders in the minor leagues at any position. There's no doubt that he can stay at third base it conversation is more like can can this guy win a gold glove one day at, at third base i mean that's how good of a defender he is he's you know really good reactions off the bat range of the position tremendous arm strength to very good instincts defensively and then i mean it's not like this guy's a slouch at the plate either he had a, a really good season and there's some there's some power there too so i i think he's yeah he's somebody who i like you said i didn't quite make the top 100 but i don't think he's too far from from that group have you seen his pregame routine in the field i have not have you just no i haven't but reading his <laughs> we wrote that he has an exhaustive pregame ritual that permits him to make plays to all directions and now i really want to see it because we don't often write about a player's especially a, a position player's pregame routines and rituals. Uh, I really want to see that now, but either way. Yeah. Casey Schmidt, another fun one. Any other guys you want to mention, Ben? 
those uh i think schmidt is a nice transition into um scott Rowland and some hall of fame talk which is required if you have a baseball podcast this week yeah yeah schmidt uh i mean yeah scott Rowland, one of the best i mean some say scott Rowland was almost as good a defensive third baseman as casey schmidt i've heard it heard it is that is that the word going around on yeah (laughs) (laughs) well you think do you think they'll put that on his on scott Rowland's plaque Hopefully so. They, they they need to. I mean, it's it's high praise, sure, but I don't think it's hyperbolic. That makes um, that makes sense. <laughs> no, do you have any Hall of Fame takes, Ben? Uh, this is a podcast that's that's very hot takey. What are your thoughts on the Hall of Fame? I, I always enjoy Hall of Fame season. I think I've increasingly found myself liking it more and more as I'm just have more familiarity with the players. But how much does the Hall of Fame get on your radar in general? And and what did you think about this year's class being just uh, Scott Rowland and I guess Fred McGriff too? Yeah, I mean, certainly my ballot and I'll, I will get a chance to vote, I think, in the next few years or so. If, if I had yeah, a ballot this year, it would have been – I would have had more players in, but I'm glad Scott Rowland got in. I mean, we talked about third baseman throughout this podcast, and Scott Rowland – just just an underrated player i think do you think he will be now i think a lot of people will probably appreciate his career now that after this announcement uh, i mean i see people talking about how they're lowering the bar for the hall of fame like i think you need to (laughs) just raise the bar for your understanding how good of a player scott Rowland was Uh, seven time all-star eight-time gold glove uh winner rookie of the year world series champ silver slugger yeah i mean consistent you know 25, 30-plus home run guy, Drew Walks, uh, one of the all-time great defensive third basemen. And and third base is a position that I think is underrepresented in the Hall of Fame, probably for some of the same reasons that we talked about earlier, which is that I think the degree of difficulty that it takes to be able to play third base is underrated, where we kind of lump them in as quote-unquote corner guys, but yeah, they're not playing shortstop they're not a catcher but you can't just <laughs> again plop you can't some, throw a loaf over there yeah it's it's or not for very long <laughs> at least right so uh, i think third base is just an underrepresented position in the hall of fame i'm happy to uh to see him start to make a change for that all right. I wanted to, since since I'm not getting a Hall of Fame vote anytime soon, Ben, I, I had a hypothetical ballot of what I would have put together. You can give yours if you want, or you can just uh, critique mine and, and tell me where I'm wrong. But I wanted to at least run through what I would have done if I had a ballot. Uh, yeah, no, I'll, let you, I'll let you know if you got it right or wrong. Okay. You want to go player by player, or should I give you the whole rundown and then you can tell me? Give me, uh, yeah, give me your... Your ballot, or what do you mean, player by player? Not just your the players you vote for. Or... Yeah, just the players on my ballot. All right. Yeah, we're we not going to run down the like... entire list. All right, Dicky. All right, Dicky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should vote for him because Baseball America screwed him out of his signing bonus. But um... not our fault. <laughs> That's an awesome story. <laughs> if you it, haven't heard it, Ben, middle. do you want to give the the overview, the skinny, the uh, the condensed version? As we had. Baseball America got a cover back in the day with the Team USA rotation on it when Dickey was in college and his arm was hanging kind of funny. A team doctor noticed, and the Rangers realized, hmm, 
something is wrong with the way his arm is being held. And they doctor looked at it and said, uh, yeah, there's something wrong with your UCL, which is that it's not there. <laughs> so cost him, cost <laughs> he's him never going to tear it. The good thing is he's never going to tear his UCL in that case. Yeah. Yeah. How can a, you positive? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously it, uh, it worked out all right for, uh, for, for R.A. Dickey, but uh, just kind of a unfortunate situation come come signing time for him. Yeah, but but anyways, here's my ballot. I, I bucketed players into a few categories. First, we've got the no doubt yes group. Uh, for me, that includes Alex Rodriguez, first and foremost. Uh, yes. Then I have Scott Rowland, and then I have Carlos Beltran. Any any qualms with those three so far? I no, think A-Rod. All three. Yeah, one of the best players all of all are, time. Yeah. Scott Rowland, we already talked about. Carlos Beltran, extremely well-rounded. He fits offensively. Great base runner. Great defender. Switch hitter. Just checks all the boxes. So that those are my no doubt yes, they would be in. My comfortably yes group, and it might surprise you that this player is in this comfortably yes tier. The first one is is Andrew Jones. And he, he has gone from my no doubt yes to my comfortably yes. Um, I think he belongs because... He's arguably one of the greatest defensive center fielders, and I find myself being more of a peak over longevity voter in general. And so his his post thirty career doesn't doesn't harm his case as much for me as it would for for many other players. And he is one of three players ever with more than two hundred fielding runs above average and one hundred batting runs above average. The other two are Roberto Clemente and Adrian Beltre. And, I, and I'm not saying that Andrew Jones is the same caliber as those two. I think those two are are clearly better all around and had better careers. But I do think that Andrew did just enough offensively combined with his defensive excellence to be a comfortable yes for me. But I will say my confidence in that pick has decreased year over year, which is maybe surprising for some people to hear. He's You got that one right. He's a yes for me. I don't have – to me, he's more of a borderline Case, I do think he's but, borderline, but I would I would lean yes. Yeah, like if you don't vote for him, I don't think that's crazy. Is how I I, I I would agree with that, and I would have him in. I think yeah. I mean, it sucks that by the time he turned thirty, he just hit a wall, and that was basically it for his productive years in the big leagues. But you know, he got to the big leagues when he was what like nineteen years old, mm-hmm. so he still had a a pretty long time. To have a long, impactful major league career, he yep. was a. I mean, he was a great hitter, too. He had multi, just a pretty consistent thirty plus home run guy uh, at a premium. Yeah. Position. A lot of people year mock with... him just because the offensive environment that he did most of his damage in. Everyone's like, "Oh, everyone is hitting all these home runs." But I mean, if you're looking at like adjusted adjusted stats he still was an above average hitter he was his 111 ops plus for his career and in his peak years he was basically 115 to 130 so I, for me it's enough um, yeah and and what puts it i mean he is a well-rounded player it's not like he was just a one-dimensional defense only guy and if you're listening yeah. you might think this sounds just uh, logically maybe silly but the the fact that he was also the best defensive outfielder, I think, of all time, right? Yes. Or or at least in that conversation. <laughs> the the fact that he I mean, he's like a what, sixty-three war 
career player, which kind of puts him in that borderline group mm-hmm. for me for yeah, a position player. But the fact that he was also with the way he came about that includes the fact that he is, again, arguably the best defensive center fielder of all time, gives him some extra status for me to want to vote for him and, and put that player in the Hall of Fame. But again, it's yeah. not like he's just like this defense only. It's not like he's Ozzie Smith, right? Exactly. Who's just defense only. And Ozzie Smith should be, you know, belongs in the Hall of Fame too. But yeah. He's not yeah. Omar Vizquel is how I'd put it. Right, of, yes. Vizquel is yeah. not a good hitter. He was a great Absolutely. defensive shortstop. But yeah, I think the reason my confidence has gone down a little bit is because a lot of his case has to do with his defensive metrics. And I don't have a lot of confidence in defensive metrics to the same extent that you have confidence in offensive metrics. I think a lot of the gold glove voting around this era is a little bit shaky. And so the case for Andrew certainly rests on him being living up to the defensive reputation he has. I think he does. Um, But just not being able to be as confident in that as you could be if he was some elite hitter, I think makes it a little less of a, he's definitely a lock for me. Um, But to the best of my knowledge, evaluating his career, he would be a yes. So Moving on from Andrew, and I think Andrew's tracking well to eventually get in, too. Uh, my next comfortable yes would be Todd Helton, 13th best OPS plus of all time for first baseman who played at least 2,000 games. I think his offensive numbers are are more than solid to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, thoughts on that one? Borderline, but I'd have him in, too. Okay. Uh, next one is Billy Wagner, and, and this one is more of an comparing him to some relievers who are in the hall of fame, uh, looking at you, Trevor Hoffman, I think Billy Wagner was more dominant than some relievers who are in the hall. Uh, I'm inclined to penalize relievers a lot because they are failed starting pitchers. But I think you could also say that for a lot of players, there are a lot of players who've moved to less prestigious roles, shortstops who moved to third base, third base who moved to first base and so on in the role that he was asked to perform. He was exceptionally dominant. There is, some crazy stat that said if he came out of retirement and allowed a hundred straight hits, his opposing batting average would still be lower than Mariano Rivera, which was pretty cool. So he would be in for me uh, just given what the reliever class in the hall of fame looks like. I I think saves are, are pretty much BS. So I'm looking at strikeouts, his, his dominance of hitters, uh, suppressing runs, suppressing batting average and runners getting on base right or wrong. Uh, I can't get on that one with you. Okay. Not that you have to be Mariano Rivera to be mm-hmm. in the Hall of Fame. I, I think Rivera was significantly ahead of where Billy Wagner was. I'm I not. I'm not on splitting pitchers up into say like like relief position. Relief pitcher is a different yeah position altogether. I mean, these guys are pitchers, and there's just less that he. Could did do. to accumulate the body of work to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, mm-hmm. an all-time great reliever, and maybe I'll change my mind on this later on, but mm-hmm. right now I, I'd have a tough time checking the box for him. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see the case where you just have to do so much as a reliever to get into the Hall. Um, that's convincing to me. He He could be a guy who, I mean, depending on the year, depending on how cramped the ballot was, would be someone maybe I wouldn't vote for. But for now, he's in. Uh, the next two that I have that are comfortable, yes, are Gary Sheffield and Manny Ramirez. 
similar in my mind. They both clear the offensive threshold by more than enough, uh, given their defense and, and other questions. I just think they were tremendous hitters. So they're both comfortable yeses for me too. Thoughts on this? Man- Manny is a yes for me. Sheffield is borderline, and I think mm-hmm. I'd probably lean against, but mm-hmm. I, I like I you know would have no problem obviously with him going in yeah. either. I think in general my my mindset is if I have a borderline guy and I'm not sure, um, I, I'm inclined to vote yes because you still have to have 75% of the, the rest of the voting body say yes or whatever the number is right under that, um, not including yourself. So that that would be my yeses. I would have A-Rod, Scott Rowland, Carlos Beltran, Andrew Jones, Todd Helton, Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Manny Ramirez. Um, so that's just eight that I had. Yeah, eight players, two off. The two that I had that I, I, I maybe could be convinced into, but I'm a no for now, um, were Andy Pettit and Jeff Kent. And I think if I had a real ballot i would vote yes for jeff kent just because i have space here in this hypothetical ballot and this is his last year so if he's a guy that i'm telling myself maybe that i could be convinced on i would rather just vote yes and not be the guy who like prevented him from getting in the hall um and the reason for my hesitancy with jeff kent is that i mean he gets knocked for his defense he has a ton of historic offensive production as a second baseman I just don't know if it's enough considering his overall like value as a player and the fact that he played 17 seasons as a second baseman, I think overcomes some of the the defensive critiques that he would get. So I could easily see going yes or no with him. And then with Pettit, I'm not necessarily convinced we figured out how to evaluate modern pitchers for the hall. And, and Matt Eddy is one person who's made a fairly compelling argument for Pettit being in um, just with his sustained success, his postseason success but for me he's a no because i really just think a lot of the stats that that i could really care less about when evaluating an individual pitcher like pitcher wins are elevated because he played for the yankees like he he got very lucky to play for the yankees and get to the postseason as often as he did and i just don't think his run prevention is good enough for the hall but i i could easily see in the future being convinced that comparing him to modern pitchers he he did enough so those are the guys who are my could be convinced but no for now i think the two most interesting candidates to me that you didn't vote for were yeah pettit is one and i Mm -hmm. I think it would be a yes on pettit in part because i i think we will have to lower our standards for for pitchers getting into the hall of fame it's just not the era of like guys throwing yeah, you know, t- you, know and you talked about it. third baseman being underrepresented. I think pitchers are already underrepresented compared to position players in the hall. I, I think it will be especially so because going forward, if if we don't change the way we view the game historically, because guys are not throwing three hundred innings a season anymore, you're just not accumulating that type of workload. So the yep. the the career numbers are just not going to be what they used to be. I mean, it, it makes guys like, you know, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer and, and those guys just absolutely, you know, phenomenal, no doubt hall of famers and, and Zach Cranky and, and those guys are truly, truly special. But, you know, we've talked about like Felix Hernandez before when he comes on the ballot, like, yeah, like just yeah. raw war numbers are not going to be. Yeah. Felix would be there. a yes for me. 
I think Eric. he's just more dominant than Pettit was, but again, comparing errors is difficult. Yeah, but and it's I so I think Pettit would be in for in for me. The, the one other guy I'm intrigued with, and I know I don't have a vote, so I haven't had to make a decision yet, is Bobby Abreu, who mm-hmm. you know if he gets in, I'm sure people will be screaming about how we're lowering the standards for mm-hmm. for the Hall of Fame. But this is not one of those guys who. You know, like the Veterans Era Committee has, you know, and, you know, the BBWA also has let in some players who probably should not be in there. But I, I think he was just an underappreciated player throughout his career. I mean, consistent 400 on-base percentages for a very long time. What, like six or seven years where he was a, you know, five to seven win player, a pretty good defender at least uh you know during his best years i think in in the outfields so a pretty well-rounded player you know did have you know 25 30 home run seasons not a huge power guy especially for that era people are going to point to him not hitting 30 home runs and i'm not saying again that he is in for me but he i think Mm -hmm. he's more intriguing than he generally gets credit for yeah. As a potential Hall of Famer. He would be a guy that I'd have to to look over more after just hearing you say that because he was he was not a not even a bubble guy for me now. But if I actually had a vote, I, I think I would take a lot more time with literally everyone on the ballot to make sure. But um I think that's that's all. Any other player are you yes or no on Jeff Kent? You didn't say on him. Nah, he'd be just below again, not somebody to be like up in arms with him getting in. Like it's not, you know. I voted like, you know, I see like Jacoby Ellsbury, like Johnny Peralta on the ballot, like, you know, very, very good players, obviously, you know, all-star guys who had tremendous careers, but, um, you know, if Jeff Kent got in, I'd get it. Yeah. So basically our differences are, you'd be a yes on Pettit, you'd be a no on Wagner and you'd be a maybe, and it sounded like a no on Sheffield and everyone else you agree with. Yeah. No on Sheffield, but also could be. Can, can see the case for him and, and, and might be convinced on, on him. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, you are yes on Andrew Jones, so we can safely continue this podcast together, Ben. If you'd, if you'd been knowing him, it would have been a little bit dicey. Maybe this would have been the final episode of the pod, but um, that's all I have on Hall Talk. What else, what else do you have before we close and get out of here and let you get back to uh, whatever it is you're doing these days? Yeah. No, you love the, you love Andrew Jones. You love Drew Jones. You love the. I love all the, the Jones family. I need to get some more Joneses. Yeah, no, it's a good time for good time for bloodlines. I think Matt Holiday is on the ballot next year. You know what of, was? Uh, you know what's funny? Speaking of, of Andrew Jones, um, Andrew Jones is in uh, the piece JJ wrote about players who could conceivably be the top prospect a year from now. I think you mm-hmm. mentioned Drew Jones. Um, and when Andrew Jones first was on the top 100 before his first full season, he ranked 21 overall. And Drew, in his first year on the top 100 prior to his first full season, he's at 24. So there are even more similarities with the father and son duo there. Wow. I am definitely looking forward to watching Drew Jones hit some home runs in the playoffs this year for the D-backs then. If he's going to yeah. follow his career. Exactly. Yeah. Once he gets over his... Um, just standard shoulder injury that the Arizona organization implements on their prospects. We'll be able to see him back in action. Yeah. Well, it's working for Corbin Carroll. 
exactly. It is. All right. Well, that wraps it up for us. Um, again, thank you guys for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's it's one of the more fun things that that I do at Baseball America, and I think Ben uh, probably enjoys it maybe to the same level as well. So thank you guys for listening. Thanks for sharing. If you know someone who might like the podcast, definitely uh, have them check it out. Maybe they'll enjoy it. Um, and thank you, as always, to Baseball America subscribers. There's a ton of content on the website right now, like we talked about at the beginning of the show. Just a very busy month for us. We're still running our promotion. So if you haven't subscribed and maybe you want to and, and to get a rare deal at Baseball America, you can subscribe now and get 15 months for the price of 12. The Prospect Handbook is out. You can get that in the digital PDF version to have it right now if you order from us directly. Uh, and they'll be shipping the hard copies of that soon. Uh, we've got updated draft rankings on the way. We've got team-by-team -team prospect podcasts on the way. We're going to be updating our top 30s uh, and 40s on the website and slotting in international signees. Uh, the college season is almost underway. We're getting very, very close to real baseball happening again. Um, ben, anything you want to mention before we get out of here? Yeah, so like uh, Carlos said, word of mouth buzz is great. So if you like the podcast, uh, appreciate all the tweets or, or reviews on iTunes or Spotify or wherever to help juice us up that algo. So we, uh, we will read yeah. them and, and definitely appreciate them. Yeah, thank you all. Uh, so for Ben, I'm Carlos. This has been the 36th episode of Future Projection. Until next time, see you later, everybody.